and welcome to Shadow Light Podcast. Join us as we navigate the big issues on your feed, moving from apathy and overwhelm to collective action and hopeful pathways forward. I'm Zoe. And I'm Larissa. And this week we're asking, what is Apple hiding? To be completely fair, guys, we started this with like the premise of being like, we all know a little bit that like Apple's an unethical company. What's going on behind our iPhone? Whose bodies are being put on the line so that we get to have iPhones, basically? But I spun out a bit from there because it's big stuff, all of this stuff. Looking into the like unethical practices of the tech sector, it's all over the gaff. There's so much that it's going to be really hard to distill into short podcasts. So bear with us if this is a bit sprawling, but we're just trying to get our heads around it, to be honest. It's not my area. Like This episode terrifies me, but we're going to get into it. Yeah, I think like we've got a lot to cover. And we're both like slyly feeling like we're going to say some stuff that's wrong and then we're going to have tech bros coming after us. But bring on the tech bros. Honestly, please don't come for me. I'm just a small girl, as I always say. I'm just a tiny girl. Okay, babe, so what have you been up to this week? What's been going on? What's been going on? Literally just vibing in Santiago, to be honest. For some reason, it's a bit chilly right now, so... I was hibernating and then I forced myself to not hibernate. So that's nice. And there's just so many great places in the city, honestly. And it's so green and I love it. So just wandering around with trees, basically. What about you? Um, so like my current situation that I'm facing is that I'm newly addicted to vaping. So I have gave up smoking this year. I, I know, I know. And I have, I have literally not had a cigarette this year. So I'm so proud of myself, but... Now I'm like fully addicted to vaping. And after doing all this reading around like unethical practices of tech, I'm like, damn, like, <laughs> I know vapes are going to be the same shit. It's all going to be made in the same places, you know? And like, maybe my action this week is going to be combating my vaping addiction as like an act of protest. But that's where I'm at. It's just so delicious. They're so delicious. These fruity flavors. I can't. So, de- so delicious. So delicious. <laughs> I know. I'm like on my watermelon ice right now. It's so embarrassing. Oh my God. I've literally never heard someone describe a vape as delicious. I don't know why that's so funny. They're so delicious because it's like, I'm literally, my two biggest addictions was like chocolate and smoking. And now I've got like a sweet treat that has nicotine in it. It's my kryptonite. Dangerous. But enough about that. Should we talk a little bit about what were the key questions we were asking this week, basically? What were you, what were you asking? If there's a, one thing I know that Big Tech's going to do, it's going to be racist. So I, <laughs> I was like, let's, let's have a look-see. And I really got down the wormhole of algorithmic colonialism. And I can't even say it. Like, the words are not coming out of my mouth correctly. But really looking at, like, community exploitation and data exploitation and how that follows a colonial logic. And uh, there's so many things that I'm still unsure about because this is so complex. But it's really just been asking the question of, like, who is being exploited in order for certain people to profit, which is what most things boil down to at the end of the day. So, yeah, I think there's definitely a connection between what we've been reading. What have you been up to? First of all, like, I was kind of nervous about this because I guess I was, like, looking and thinking about the iPhone and, like, I feel like the iPhone is, like, that classic thing of, like, you can't hate capitalism because you own an iPhone. It's, like, right wing's, like, favourite argument. So I was like, you know, it's such a tricky one, this, because I do have an iPhone and I do hate capitalism. So I was like, okay, like, let's take it back like how did we get to this point where we all have these like machines that we completely depend on and we all sort of know about the like enslaved labor that's involved in making it but like how did apple kind of manage to get to this point where it's still like revered as this like progressive like incredibly aspirational like 
technology company, we all kind of know there's so much blood on their hands. And I think what I've been really finding is that they're really operating on this kind of, as you were saying, like the fact that we don't know and it's like hard to understand. It's so complicated, like algorithmic colonialism, like the really complex like policy reforms in China, which like I was trying to get, I was trying to get my head around because it's like the evolution of like China as a country where such weak labor laws is like you can directly attribute it back to like Apple's influence. They will never admit they're like, China's the problem, not us. We don't know what goes on in the factory. So I was like, let's get into it. Let's like try and track back like how these things influence each other. Um, so yeah, it's a bit all over the place, my sort of section, but I'm going to try and like <laughs> make something kind of linear out of it. So bear with me a little bit. There's quite a lot. No, with me too, honestly. I feel like this is going to be an episode of chaos and I'm ready. I basically start, I've done like a load of actual readings. Like I did, I was in my kind of like journal bag this week. I was like looking at the texts, the academic texts this week. And basically I was like really interested, first of all, like by this concept called the digital and technological sublime. The idea of like how tech is presented to us, like these utopian ideals, it's like Silicon Valley, it's like tech futures, it's like clean aesthetics that we all kind of attach to tech. And like how marketing of like these tech companies like double down on this, like, you know, like they all work in Silicon Valley and everyone plays bing bong and they all, you know what I mean? And like as a society, we are quite transfixed with it. But actually like this kind of like technological sublime enables some of the most dystopian labor practices. Like it can only function, you can only have this tech sublime because of these like dystopian labor practices. So I was like looking at this academic called Marisol, who's like working to unpick this myth of the technological sublime and like what it's concealing. And just looking at some of her research and, or their research, actually, I'm not sure about their gender. They're basically talking about how like ICT, so like information and communication technologies have like played a double role in the restructuring of capitalism since the 1970s. So on the one hand, they enable really fast transnational communication that's needed for organizing international markets. So they enable that like really quick international communication that we didn't have before. And on the other hand, the production of the technologies of itself is a mishmash of all these like different international places. There's this international supply network. And this person called Nick Dyer Witherford describes the value chain of tech as the dirty secret of the digital revolution. And like this basically makes clear that like the global information economy is built off the backs of tens of millions of Chinese industrial workers. So I was kind of like digging into this and like how Apple really captures this tension about how their products are like new media arts, like journalism, like tech is it's symbols for technological progress. But it's like simultaneously is only been able to get that through. It's like incredibly horrific manual labor practices under miserable conditions for the electronics, which has enabled its booming success. So it's trying to kind of like unpick that. So I started by reading this piece called Apple and the Dark Side of the Information Age, which is like a deep dive, like Marxist reading of like labor exploitation and it's specifically relation to like tech and Apple. And it like really, it drew on kind of um, these kind of watchdog groups on the ground in China who were like sneakily basically keeping tabs on what all the like companies and the exploitative labor practices are doing. They're really amazing and like it's really, really dangerous work. So it's like drawing off this like grassroots research, but it gives, it starts with a bit of a historical context, which is that, yeah, this like global restructuring of capitalism like around the 1970s meant that there was like a new international division of labor. So where like companies had to relocate the production and labor to countries where the labor power was cheaper in order to like make these products. So wherever there are less labor protections, paying work is much cheaper. That's where the production is going to happen, which had a massive impact on like working conditions around the world as this kind of was happening simultaneously or kind of forcing labor rights to weaken because countries who kind of more emerging economies were like, we can attract all this international investment if we basically just don't pay our workers anything. And like China's labor takeoff was happening at the same time as this like massive expansion of global free trade. 
And as it became like integrated into these like tech supply chains, the Chinese state at the same time was making all these like insane policy reforms to make them more attractive to large corporations. So this like massive economic reform program where like China's wealth was dependent upon the investment of corporations and governments from other countries, specifically around tech and ICT. And they were basically enabling loads of tax exemptions so that foreign companies could make use of Chinese land and exploit Chinese labor, but only paying a tiny bit back to the Chinese public through taxes. And so by 2005, foreign companies controlled 70% of the profits of China's ICT sector, but were only like made up 40% of tax from the sector. So basically it was just like cheap labor, maximized profits, minimized taxes, a dream for these like emerging technology companies. But like this was a massive shift in China from kind of state labor to privatized labor. And this meant that like it was replacing China's former system, which like included medical care, education opportunities, pensions, housing. That was now erased as people were being like kind of the only opportunities were to work for these privatized corporations. And through that, it kind of weakened the power of the Chinese working class. And China became this favorite for companies to outsource cheap labor. And China kind of posited itself as having this limitless supply of labor by just not funding or putting any funding into like rural farming sector so that young people who were living rurally were forced to migrate to cities to work for these privatized organizations. And so it was like there's this increased demand from tech booming and they're like, we'll just kind of make living conditions really shit for people living in rural areas. So they're forced to go and work for these companies, basically. So there's this like dual thing happening where like the Chinese state is taking advantage of neoliberalism to become a booming ICT superpower. But it only can do this by weakening the power and lowering the standards of life for the for the worker. Conversely from that, like corporations are weaponizing their like their power to weaken the labor laws to make their corporations more profitable. So these things are happening at the same time, right? And like with what you said before, is that basically all of that's happening. And then these like cute little films about like Apple and Facebook are coming out and it's like, oh, is that basically propaganda then? Like, but the tech version. Yeah, I I have a stat in here somewhere, which is like at the same time as like Apple was like going through this insane boom, it was voted like most admired company like four years in a row, even though it wouldn't have been able to like make up the boom without basically like sacrificing like the mental health and lives and wellness of all of these Chinese workers. So like, it's just like what's happening in like Europe and the US where like Apple's booming is so dislocated from like the disgustingly like exploitative practices on the ground and Apple wants to keep it that way Mm. because they're like... Do you know what I mean? It's like they're, they're, it all comes from them being like, look at how incredible we are. Look at how like modern we are. Like I was talking to my friend actually about this earlier and she was like, everyone like really like admired Steve Jobs because apparently he like lived as a monk for ages, like shaved his head and lived as a monk and then wanted to have like, I can't remember the term that she used, but she was saying how he was like really into spiritual capitalism and everyone about, and everyone in like 2007 was like, oh my God, amazing. You look back on that now and you're like, okay, bullshit. Like I call fucking bullshit. Like it's crazy. So I was like specifically reading a bit about like the Jenny Chan, who's done like a load of research into like the unethical practices in, in the factories in China, who wrote this book, Dying for an iPhone. She's really focused on one of the supplier companies to Apple called Foxconn, who's like the world's largest tech manufacturing service provider who employ over 1 million workers. And they're like Apple's main supplier, basically. And she was just like looking at how in 2010, 18 Foxconn workers attempted suicide and 14 died. And she was like, okay, using this as like a way to like, okay, what's going on here? Why are these people, these young, like rural migrants who are working in the sector, like trying to like die basically because of how bad the conditions are. And so she's kind of drawing it out into like how we got to that point. 
And it's like exactly like this point in the mid to late noughties, between 2009 and 2010, the sales of iPhones increased by 93%. And so with this sudden influx of orders, Foxconn workers, so those who were like in the factory, suddenly their work increased by like an unbelievable amount. And like when the first iPhone landed in like the second half of 2007, the turnaround from time to market for the first model was six months. And by 2012, the turnaround was two weeks. Two weeks? Yeah, two weeks. So like something that, you know, so it's like not only is the work getting more complicated, but the workers are having less time to do it. And like the demand is just increasing. And like Foxconn is having to kind of like find labor power in order to like satiate this insane demand from like, yeah, like US, UK, European countries. It's like the work is getting harder and the time is getting shorter. And so they call this like this period of growth arguably the fastest and biggest supply chain development for any sector ever. And the impact on the workers, the workers were the one who had to pay the price, right? And because iPhone shipments were experiencing spikes in like holidays and close to New Year, Foxconn had to like extend working hours to adapt the workforce to these boom and bust trends like on the like daily. And work's getting more complex. Demand's getting more. Phones are getting thinner. So it's like, these are, these, are, these are incredibly skilled workers. Like, I, I, can't, I had the stats somewhere. I don't have it in front of me. But it was something like each iPhone had like 500 pieces in and the assembly time was like 30 seconds of the worker assembling these iPhones. Like 30 seconds. It was unbelievable. Like, so skilled. But like, you know, in the eyes of our system, it's like, you know, unskilled labor or whatever. So these pressures of just-in-time production alongside like competitiveness of the local labor market put massive burdens on the assembly line worker who, um, as kind of Marisol says, it experiences a sense of, a sense of time and space caving in. And like Foxconn is this super profitable company, but depends on orders from consumer brands such as Apple to survive. So if Apple is telling you, we need to make X many more iPhones, you have to do it. Otherwise you're going to lose the job. So the companies drive down the price they pay to their suppliers, which makes them, the suppliers less or no longer profitable so to get back in the game the suppliers have to reduce costs and what's the easiest way to reduce your costs it's reducing the pay how much you pay your workers basically so how do they do this illegal working hours poor occupational health and safety and who is always the workers who lose out and so marisol like lists like different areas that you can like look into and to understand like how all this unethical stuff is happening so number one as i said before like this workforce was made up of like young like majority female migrant workers who are like exposed to serious health hazards and exhausting working conditions. And migrant workers are a particularly vulnerable group because they lack social contacts and therefore they're prone to isolation. So, and they also have like literally less protections. So like in Shenzhen, migrant workers are 99% of the workforce, but because they don't have resident cards, they don't have maternity or unemployment protections, Chinese laws prevent them from becoming urban citizens because if they're an urban citizen, they have to educate them and they're entitled to medical care. So they're like, bring in the migrant workers so we don't have to give them any social support and it's super cheap for the state as well. And so you have no choice, right? You've got no money. You've got to work in these factories and you're super disposable because you've got no labour protection. So you have to just do whatever they tell you to do. It's, it's, it's slave labour, it's slave labour. And because, again, health and safety protections cost money, in that period of growth, there were so many kind of environmental hazards and toxic incidents that caused like serious like um, incidents in their supply chain. One example of like 47 workers at one of Apple's factories were hospitalized because they were poisoned with N-hexane, which causes paralysis of arm and legs, which they were using to clean the iPhone touchscreens and no one obviously informed them of the health hazards of that. And like none of the workers were formally diagnosed with that. There was only one that got a diagnosis and it was someone who was taken to the off-site hospital. So it's like this machine that's trying to like 
it's it's able to just kind of like exploit these workers and never accept accountability because the only people that are holding them accountable are themselves. And like beyond that, there's all this unbelievable stuff around like the social and psychological control that's happening in these factories. So the management like intentionally create an environment which like is like psychological psychological torture. They do this thing where workers are housed in like dormitories on site, but they never house workers with the same people that you're on shift on to stop you building social relationships and like unionizing, collectivizing. They have no free time for social activities. And when they asked at Foxconn, these watchdogs were interviewing like workers and being like, what would you like to do if you had on a holiday? All the interviews said sleep because they don't have enough time to sleep. They work 14 hours a day. Um, they're not allowed to talk during work. They hardly ever meet anyone. And there's this, there's this weird thing where like, if your supervisor says, are you okay? You have to say, yes, yes, I'm okay. And that's the only thing that you can apply. So it's almost like a military camp situation. Like it's really bizarre and dystopian. And they make sure that nobody signs any contracts so that workers can be dismissed at any time. And therefore we can hang that over the worker's head, right? Because if you've got no contract, you've got no legal recourse to address the labor violations. And aside from that, they, yeah, they use migrant workers, short-term contracts. They love to have labor agencies. So people who are like on short-term and bringing people in and out in order for them to not kind of build solidarity. They also have to, and I was like, you'd be really interested in this. Like they do this thing with student interns where they threaten like students. If they don't do like a stint at one of these factories, they won't be able to pass their degrees. It reminds me of the like school to prison pipeline. It's like the school to slave labor pipeline in these factories. Because they're like, you won't be able to get your degree unless you come and work here. And then they get stuck in, in these roles. And so they, you will just agree to whatever like the insane overtime is, because otherwise you'll lose your job, basically. And the, obviously the wages are incredibly low. Somo, who's one of these watchdogs, interviewed the workers in China and Philippines and Thailand of Apple suppliers. The wages were too low to cover their living expenses all below wage regulation. But this was happening at the same time. So this is in 2007. This was happening at the time that Apple was the second most profitable company in the world. So the high profits that Apple was experiencing and like why it was so attractive for shareholders was because they were paying the workers nothing. And the less Apple has to pay for paying wages, the higher the company's profits. And basically, it's the whole thing is saying that people think Apple was successful because of its like innovative design. But the reason why it was successful was because it found a new model to not pay workers anything. Like that is the reason why Apple was successful. Like it would not have been able to um, meet the demand or even be as profitable without not paying its workers anything. Yeah. And just all of these kind of harsh conditions weaponized to keep people from socializing, building solidarity and basically just keep people too exhausted to even understand how you would enact change. And yeah, China must keep these labor conditions poor to remain a global superpower. So it's in the Chinese government's interest to not to ratify like the conventions of the International Labor Organization because it's like they're so influenced by global multinational corporations. And, and I think this is one of the things that I found really interesting is that like obviously China, the Chinese government is a problem here. Like China is framed as the problem. But these changes happen because of the influence of the CEOs and shareholders of these big tech companies. And they need to be held as accountable in this and not point the finger at China and like workers' lives are disposable for profit in the eyes of the Chinese state, but also in the eyes of these, like, fancy Apple-like CEO-like tech bros. But what does accountability in this space even look like? Who holds them to account? How? What is the mechanism? Like, is there... I don't know. Is there anything in the literature around, like, what it would look like for Apple to be held to account by its workers, like, for any big tech company who is doing this to be held to account? I think what's really interesting is that, like, I looked at the example specifically around that incident of the, the 18 suicide attempts in Foxconn at this particular time of when Apple was like growing exponentially. And but basically the Chinese labor um, union operates as kind of like an arm of the state. 
and the Chinese government are actively working overtime to suppress any kind of like collective organizing. It almost feels like an not impossible, but like really difficult to get accountability from that. It was interesting how that one incident got, for some reason, a lot of press coverage, um, specifically because of like Taiwanese activists who were like, we're going to mobilize around this to try to call people into account. And it was so there was like a lot of mobilization in, in Taiwan, in like solidarity in Mexico, in US, in Hong Kong. And that international outcry and like consistently trying to call in Foxconn into account actually led to a response, whereas like other there'd been like all these labor practices happening for a while and there had been no response. So Foxconn was forced to admit that there was a problem. The issue was is then the Chinese state kind of put and Foxconn's like comms then put kind of blamed like young rural like migrant workers having like a mental health crisis around like it was a it was a mental health thing so they were still trying to like dodge it but because of this consistent work from these international like network of activists there was some acknowledgement and there was some force of change and they were like forced to make some changes around kind of like overtime and like minimum wage however it clearly worked in in the sense that it proved that like international solidarity is really powerful it's not going to come from the worker because of the way that these conditions are, but like we can be practice international solidarity by like continually engaging in campaigns that call this out, but they will wiggle out. And Marisol went back and looked at the literature after they'd implemented these changes. And it was just like, they're just saying stuff, right? Like they do all the, like they say like, we're going to raise the payment of the worker, but then they made sure that none of those workers had more of a contract more than six months. So they're just disposable again. Like, so it's all this kind of stuff, but like there is some kind of hope in like, the international solidarity space like holding them accountable but I think it's interesting because I think what we are having to ask for here is I think the just from reading all of this like we should focus on Apple's shareholders as those who are culpable because in 2018 Apple generated super profits of 59.5 billion so that's more than 13 times more than Foxconn's profit and Foxconn has to adapt to the needs of Apple like these Chinese subsidiary companies have to adapt to the demands that Apple is setting and these big buyer dominated global production chains like they actually have less power than these these companies that are like you know I'm Silicon Valley baby Apple has managed to like geographically and physically remove itself from the struggles on the factory floor but it's as much on Apple as it is on the Chinese government and Foxconn through kind of activism around this Apple was forced to kind of take a greater look at their supply chains in light of all this incidents and activism. But like in its articulation of the problem, the whole thing that it did was basically put the blame on on like the Chinese government, basically, and being like, it's not our problem, it's a China problem. So Apple's supplier responsibility report said the problem is much less severe and then just put the blame on Chinese management systems um, rather than understanding that their, their business model was what necessitated labor exploitation, basically. So I know I don't know I actually don't know what accountability kind of looks like in this sector and like you know in even in recent months in November 2022 protests erupted at a Foxconn factory and there was images of police beating protesters and arresting them so there is unionizing happening and like mobilization happening on the ground but like the state is really violently suppressing it and it was really interesting I read an article that Al Jazeera was talking about these protests and they said as companies start to relocate their operations, they have a chance to account for their human rights record in their communist country. For years, they have bowed to the state policies that restrict fundamental freedoms of Chinese citizens. And I thought that was really interesting, again, because I feel like it's, again, saying that these corporations have bowed to the Chinese state. And I don't think that's true at all of what has happened. I feel like it's they're culpable in creating these policies. And so... I think so much of this is about supporting these watchdog groups that are happening on the ground that are like documenting day in, day out the exploitation that's happening in these factories. 
And also like, I don't know. It's I think the question I'm kind of left with is like, we need to think about, and I'm sure people are doing this, so I need to do more research, but like, how do we influence these shareholders? How, what does a targeted campaign against these shareholders look like? Because they're much more likely, I, I think, to be influenced by campaigns that change Apple's light from being this like technological sublime to being like, you know, slave labor. Because they've, they've had to do it previously because they did all these like response reports. Like they are listening and they're trying to dodge out of it. So I think it's like, how do you build on the work that's already happening to just make sure these tech companies know that they are culpable. But then you are, I don't know. I, that's, I guess that's what I'm struggling with. I guess that's what I'm struggling with. So I don't know. I guess I'll pass it over to you. I'm also struggling with my piece because it's like, how do you even wrap your head around this stuff, first of all, and then get into like tackling it? Like it's huge. And like where you focused on the exploitation of workers, the stuff that I've been reading is really about the exploitation of data and how like whose data is being exploited and what that means. And the paper that like was really foundational in a lot of what I read was called Algorithmic Colonialism, a Colonization Rather of Africa by Biba Berhain, which I hope I've said correctly. And just to set the scene for what we're even talking about here. So algorithmic colonialism is about technological action taken by corporate tech monopolies. So we know the kinds like Apple or Facebook, Google, etc., driven by profit maximization at any cost. So they do not care <laughs> whose lives, whose stories, whose knowledges are being uh, exploited. And like all of this action is assuming that like the human soul, the behavior and the action are raw material free for the taking. So it's just like, it's wild out there. Like they're just like, oh, anything that you do, we can take that. That's for our data purposes. It's about knowledge, authority, and power to sort, categorize, and order human activity resting with the technologists for whom people of color, and especially people of color in the global South, are merely data-producing human natural resources. Um, so again, it's the exploitation of resources from the global South to profit in the global North, but this time it's just about our data rather than mining for minerals, resources, you know, the things in the ground. Um, and then... <laughs> It's also about these monopolies accumulating wealth from the process of this resource extraction. So if it sounds familiar, it's because it is. It's because we saw it with colonialism 1.0. This is just 2.0. And it's happening with data. I think we often, when it comes to data exploitation, talk about like the erosion of privacy. We talk about how all of this serves the surveillance state. But often we're not talking about whose data is being exploited and why and what that means. And for me, it took reading up on a specific example, I think, to unlock what that means in my head, at least. So I wanted to share one of those with you. So back in 2016, Facebook declared that it was creating a population density map of most of Africa using computer vision techniques, population data and high res satellite imagery. So we all know that conversations about population in Africa are often very, very weighted specifically when it comes to climate, when it comes to, you know, the idea of overpopulation and so on. So I, I don't know that I need to explain why this is so terrible, like in that sense. What really unlocked in my head was explaining why it was terrible in the sense of data extraction and what that actually means. So Abiba Bahain talks about like the stealing and profiting from resourcing through extraction of data. She talks about the positioning of authority and why that's terrible, and then also the kind of saviorist colonial logics in this. So just to start with the extraction of data itself, 
She talks about Facebook kind of assuming that the continent of Africa, its people, its movement and its activities are essentially up for grabs for the purpose of data extraction and profit maximization through the creation of this population map and how that leads into the dehumanization of the people behind those data points. Um, So it's essentially saying that your thoughts, feelings, reactions, all of those belong to me for the profit that I can gain from them. And she's just talking about how that is essentially in and of itself a really dangerous road to go down, um, how it sets a precedent for this industry that she's really worried about. I think the second point that she's then going on to is about authority. So assuming authority over what is perceived as legitimate knowledge of the continent's population. Like she says, Facebook in the process of this population map has assigned itself the authority responsible for mapping, controlling and creating population knowledge of the continent. And who is Facebook to do that? Like, I'm so sorry. Why is someone sitting in the global north, likely in in Silicon Valley, trying to essentially decide why and where people are in Africa for what I'm so sorry like there's this assumption that that knowledge and those those data points can then be decided by somebody else I think the whole issue when it comes to authority is like who decides what is and isn't legitimate knowledge like through the delegitimization of certain knowledges like how are you impacting how the population is viewed right And that point that she's talking about is like saviorist rhetoric and how that actually impacts the real terms reality of workers in uh, and across the continent. So she's saying that like statements like creating knowledge about Africa's population distribution and connecting the unconnected, providing humanitarian aid, like all of these things are like justification for the project or used as justification for the project. But that is essentially just echoing old colonial rhetoric. So like, we know what these people need, we're going to come and save them, like they should be grateful for it. And so much of that is really highly problematic because who is Facebook to connect to the unconnected rather than talking about the actual reparations needed to level the playing field when it comes to tech production and tech access? Connected to what? Please. Like connected to what and for why? Be so for real. Like you've got a consumer base that you want to map into your amorphous blob where you have all the control over all the data. Like, yeah, but you're right. The language is, it's it's the same thing as the way that Apple presents itself. It's this language of like a better future for all of us. And you're like... (laughs) But what, but what and why? But what do you mean by that? And like, who are you to decide that that is the future that the people of Africa would like? Like, just, it's so infuriating. And it's like quite hard to, like, I think this, the texts that I've been reading are so dense and like, so they explain it so well, but I'm trying to like explain it in a way that makes sense, but it's, it's quite hard. And like, okay, I think I've got to use an example because I think it makes it easier. Like, that, okay, so a lot of the terminology that's used by FinTech I was reading about, like, is banking the unbanked which is again just like a ridiculous terminology to refer to someone who doesn't use a bank banking the unbanked that's really freaky so fintech has been using this terminology a lot specifically fintech microfinancing and in this text they were talking about like how the revival of like colonial era rhetoric they're trying to cover up the fact that they don't care about getting microfinancing to you know, entrepreneurs in Africa. They care about leaving already impoverished communities in perpetual debt, which I thought was just like a perfect explainer for like what all of this is doing. The idea of microfinancing being this 
savior for people who need small pots of money in order to start up businesses in Africa is ridiculous because most of these companies don't benefit Africa in any way. Okay, so for example, if we look at Kenya, like Branch and Tala are like two of the most prominent fintech apps in Kenya. Both of them operate from Californian headquarters. And so they're essentially exploiting and exporting Silicon Valley's intentions onto Kenyan communities without accountability for like the underlying purpose of those, for the the relevance of who benefits from it, who might be disadvantaged by the application of these tools. Like it's ridiculous. And then even if you look at Safaricom, which is like a Kenyan comms company who have created this thing called the Safaricom Foundation, it's based in Nairobi, right? So it's technically Kenyan supporting the Kenyan population, if you want to say that their taxes do that. It's 35% owned by the Kenyan government. If you look at the other, the rest of that breakdown, 40% of the shares are controlled by Vodafone, which we know is a UK multinational corp. And the other 25% is held by wealthy foreign investors. So the vast majority of the profits from the Safaricom Foundation, which is supposedly banking the unbanked, like, and doing this benevolent, really supportive, like, it's a lie. It's a lie. It's taking people who are already often in the global south, who uh, have less access to resources than would be in the global north, and ensuring that they will be in perpetual debt. Like, that is the only motivation, because at the end of the day, the bottom line is the bottom line for these companies. So it's for me that, again, that example was like a way to make it tangible in my head of like what is actually happening here when we're talking about algorithmic exploitation of communities and like what that means in practice. Um, So it's also the question of like whether or not this technology is actually helpful or harmful in and of itself, not even thinking about the data exploitation. Like um, the academic that I was reading about was talking about the fact that A, Western developed AI is often unfit as a solution for African problems. So we know all of the stories about, you know, the tech being used in a way that is already set up to harm already harmed populations. So, for example, in Joburg, in Johannesburg, we know it's one of the most surveilled cities in Africa already. There's a company called Vumacam, uh, which is an AI powered surveillance company that is really fastly expanding in South Africa. It's essentially normalizing surveillance and Some people have argued that it's essentially putting in place apartheid era segregation through using the guise of like neutral technology, but kind of actively having software flags where unusual behavior is like dominated by what is seen among the black demographic and those who most commonly do manual labor, such as construction workers. So there is classist racist tech being deployed in South Africa and essentially reifying apartheid struggles uh, in that way so we know that already like AI is a problem we've seen you know the fact that it doesn't often register black and brown faces like all of those issues we have seen I think what I haven't necessarily come across before is kind of the other side of that issue which is that algorithmic invasion of Africa is simultaneously impoverishing development of local products so again this piece is talking about how places like Nigeria, where it's one of the most technically developed countries in Africa, is importing 90% of all software that is used in the country. So local production of software is essentially just being reduced to add-ons, to extensions that are created for packaged software that's created in the West. 
So, and I think the fact that they describe it as algorithmic invasion is absolutely key here. Like it is creating a market where there is no space for or way for local AI and other technologists to get involved in this market. Like there's no way for that to happen because it's being saturated by the West. It's being saturated by these massive corporations. I essentially feel like this, all of these things together, whether it's data exploitation, whether it's the saturation of the market, whether it's, you know, the assumption of authority over the data of black and brown bodies and folks and thoughts and feelings, all of this is harmful because ultimately it means that once again, we're seeing the reification of colonialism. We're seeing the extraction from the global South for profit in the global North. And that's where we're at. This is highly problematic. And I have so many questions. I think my main question is, where do we go from here? Like, what do we do with this? I think some of the solutions that people have suggested is around, like, guidelines and safeguards for, like, rights and freedoms around this. But again, like, what does it even look like? Like, who do you target to get that? Because a lot of the governments in these situations are, again having to engage with these tech corporations because they are so powerful and also they gain from engaging with these. I mean, similarly to what you were saying before about the case of China. So how do you then leverage power in order to put rights and freedoms in place? And what does it mean to support the engagement with technology to the degree that people in Africa are actually comfortable and want Like, how do you hear those voices and amplify those voices rather than speaking over people and deciding whether or not they want to go from unbanked to banked or whether or not they want to go from unconnected to connected? Again, what does that even mean? So lots of questions, very few answers, but this was a minefield of stuff. Like, I didn't even know where to start. I don't know where I'm ending, but (laughs) it's somewhere. It's, and it's, it's so interesting what you say as well, because it's like, I mean, when I was looking at the Apple stuff, like often these, the state gets so much from working with these tech companies. Like in November, there was a, like Apple limited like, the parameters for wireless file sharing on, on its app airdrop after that was being used by anti-government protesters in China. So it basically eliminated kind of like all of its, what it was being used for during protests. So like while companies like Apple are being like, no, like we're not the problem. Like China's the problem. Like it's not even that bad. They're you know, behind the scenes, actively supporting like the oppression of people at the hands of the state. And it's like, where is the leverage points? It's so mammoth. It's scary. And as you say, we're seeing, you know, the exact same processes happen all over again, but just in the, the, the digital and technology landscape. Like who's doing it different? No, honestly, it's like, if it sounds familiar, it's because it bloody well is like, it's so like reading this was like, how are we running the same track again? Are we not tired? Like we should be when we should be talking about reparations, we're just doing the same thing. Oh, it's real. My head hurts. Like my head actually hurts. And I feel like what I was really inspired by was seeing there are like these active watchdog groups. So particularly the ones that Marisol referenced in their paper called some so S O M O and S SACOM S A C O M, who are like these corporate watchdogs who are like going like underground, well like underground, but like incognito I don't even know but like going in and pretending to be workers and like doing these investigations but like part of understanding all of this is having the like the information to know that it's happening and that's really hard to get because you're working against like these billion dollar 
tech companies and these the, these like oppressive state systems that don't want you to know any of this is happening. So like these people who these activists and these people on the ground like need to be supported. So I would check them out. That's my if you're gonna do an action, I would say check out these corporate watchdogs who are doing the work to find and crack this information and use it and influence decision makers. And I think part of it, like the calls on their website are about sharing this information. And I know that's obviously such a classic one, which feels like it's not enough, but like really is sharing and so more people are aware of these like the way that these practices are using. But again, I think so much of this, their power operates on the fact that like, it's so hard to get your head around all of this stuff, like algorithmic colonialism and like the stuff around fintech. It's like, it's, it's so beyond like what the stuff that most of us kind of think about and like are able to get our heads around and they capitalize on that. So I don't know, like so much of this is just, I think having an understanding of like what, what the stuff, like the tech that you use, where that comes from and whose body's been put on the line in order for you to have that. And and also what even engaging with these technologies is enabling worldwide. But like, I, I actually think that maybe our action is to go away and find someone to have on to answer some of these questions. Yeah, I definitely agree. Because we need some hope. <laughs> we need some hope out here. So definitely think that's a great action. But at the moment where I'm finding hope is in the fact that this is being brought to light. Like, it's academics like Aviva Bahain who allow us to even get into knowing what's happening. It's all the people who wrote the the journal articles that you were speaking about, like who are uncovering things that have been hidden for so long. So that does give me hope that at least we're starting to get into it so that we can then do some more exploration on this. But wow, what a mammoth topic, man mammoth topic and I feel like we didn't even really get into the reads with it like I had to cut out so much of mine which is like before you even get to the factory all of the labor that's involved with like uh, mining the minerals for like the lithium batteries and it's like all the abusers that go on in the mine. like I'm branching my phone because this is a podcast these things are evil there's so much evil wrapped up in them and it's like yeah I don't know I don't know I don't know how we I don't know I don't know We're, this is a call out tell us who we need to speak to to feel more hope on this like please Give us the recs. Like, we need the recs. We need the readings. We need to know who we're, like, supporting, who we're uplifting, who we're funding. Like, I was just sitting here like, guys, I'm actually a bit dazed. Like, I'm I'm like, what? But alas, um, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. I know. I don't know if we moved away from Overwhelm to Hope, this this one, but, like... I don't, I don't, know, if we, I don't know if we understood the assignment, but, you know. <laughs> Feeling very overwhelmed feeling very overwhelmed i believe next week we're going to be talking about solar punk with one of the pioneers of solar punk so come and definitely check that out been doing some amazing work around like communicating what it is i am obsessed with solar punk if you don't know what it is it's both an like an art aesthetic and a political movement which is based around imagining a future of humanity that's based in harmony between nature technology and people and humanity and it's all about kind of like how do we how like you know like using things like fiction and art to like start to imagine the world that we want um because in doing that we are able to realize that other futures are possible i'm obsessed with it it saved me a time when i'd like was totally burnt out in the climate movement and i found this and i was like oh my god imagination is actually really important and like feeling like other worlds are possible is so important and like i think potentially this is an episode where we can talk about okay we know that technology is an important part of having a future that's good for all of us and that tech can be built in a way which is in balance with people and planet and actually makes us all have better quality lives but not at the expense of like other people but we I think maybe this is the space to be like okay how would we build that differently what does that look like and what are some of the hopes the the sort of like sprouts of solar punk that we see now that we might be able to kind of like 
jump on top of and uplift and build towards the, uh, how, how are we building the, the societies that we want within the system that we hate? So yeah, I'm going to actually be coming into that session with <laughs> loads of stuff to talk about. It's going to be a therapy session, to be honest. But I'm excited about it. That sounds dreamy. I'm so excited to listen. We need a fun one after this one. Bloody hell. But I think that's us. Have a good week, everyone. Have a good one. See ya. Thanks for listening, guys. If you've got thoughts, feelings, critiques, resource recommendations, all that good stuff, we really, really want to hear it. So defo comment on the Insta, shadow.mag, or hit us up on our new Gmail, shadowlightpodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to be really nice, you can subscribe to us on Apple and Spotify Podcasts or give us a nice little rating. And we would love you for that. Thank you.